If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. For the sake of time, we'll read Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let us pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we pray that you who is the one who gives life by your Spirit would help us to understand your word, to consider the very first chapter and this holy book you've given to us, and that you would be honored and glorified through our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, not a few years ago now, uh, at the beginning of my own personal ministry, my service to the Lord as a pastor, I preached through the book of Genesis, most all of it, I think, if I remember correctly. And uh, I was uh, traveling pretty slowly through it. I preached numerous sermons through Genesis chapter 1. And uh, I think there were some who you know, wondered if I would ever get through the book of Genesis. And uh, this morning, the uh, reverse is my concern. And that is that I'm going to spend one sermon on Genesis chapter 1. Maybe I'm not spending enough time on it. And so, really the point, or the purpose this morning, is to get a bird's eye, an aerial view of Genesis chapter 1. And I've chosen to do that for two reasons. Uh, one is because uh, next week, Lord willing, we plan to be in John's Gospel. We're going to start studying John's Gospel. And in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning... And it takes us back to this place in the Word of God. And then second, there's another reason. And that is this text, this passage of Scripture is crucial. It is foundational for achieving a right understanding of reality. If you want to know the truth about the world in which you live, the truth about yourself, you have to start here. And so we talk about a biblical worldview. The old reformer John Calvin talked about putting on the spectacles of Holy Scripture so that you could see and understand the world in which you live. And it's always good for us as God's people to be reminded of the things that are here in Genesis chapter 1. And so what I'd like to do is just talk about the four effects or consequences of Genesis chapter 1. There are probably more than this, but uh, for our purposes this morning, I've chosen four. And so what are they? Well, first of all, Genesis chapter 1 confronts us with the existence of God. If you look at verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God. Elohim is the word there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the Bible doesn't begin with a fourfold proof of the existence of God. Now, although it is true that we could talk about proofs for the existence of God, biblically speaking, the Bible assumes the existence of God, doesn't it? And it does that for good reason. 
Now, there are those who deny the existence of God. There are those who say they can't really know if there is a God. Those are atheists. They are agnostics. But the Bible says something different, doesn't it? In fact, in Psalm 19 and verse 1, it says the heavens are what? Declaring the glory of God. The firmament shows forth His handiwork. Day unto day, it utters speech and knowledge goes out through the earth. And so the heavens and the earth, they are preaching, they are declaring the glory of God, that He is there. And so in other words, the knowledge of the one living and true God is inescapable. It's inescapable. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, you perhaps remember this, we just finished Romans Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome not too long ago. In Romans 1 and verse 18, it talks about the wrath of God which is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so if a person does not believe in God, if a person does not seek after God, they're without excuse. And of course, the Bible says, because of our sin nature, no man seeks after God. And so the result is Psalm 14 and verse 1, right? It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so it's foolish to deny God's existence, but men do that. But as we begin in talking about this, we see then the difference between two types of revelation. I don't mean the book of revelation, but God's active revealing of himself to all mankind. He does it through general revelation. That's the creation Psalm 19, as we said. But there's also special revelation. That's the Word of God, written and recorded for us in Holy Scripture. And so we have this special revelation in addition to general revelation. We have the Bible in addition to God's creation. So again, the Bible begins by assuming or presupposing the existence of God. And by the way... Perhaps you've noticed this or you know this already. In Genesis 1.26 it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so there is a plurality in the Godhead. And God, through His Word, eventually would go on to reveal that there are how many persons in the Godhead? Three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it begins by assuming this. And, and this is important. It's important because it means to us that God is knowable. He's not unknowable. Now, His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is transcendent. He is far above us. He's the Creator. We are the creatures. And there must be that distinction maintained. But God is knowable. In fact, in uh, Romans 1 and verse 20, again, it says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. We can understand His eternal power and Godhead. So whether you look through the telescope at the heavens or you look through a microscope 
or you look as one said, our fingernails, our digestive systems. God is knowable, and we understand that He is full of wisdom and power and glory. As the psalmist said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And also when it comes to what is right and wrong, we have this thing called the conscience, and Paul would talk about that in Romans 2. When he says in verse 14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience, also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. But as the Bible says in Romans 1.18, we know what men do with this knowledge of God. They take it and they suppress it in unrighteousness. There's this knowledge of God and men, it's, it's like if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and you see this vast chasm between yourself, this ledge, and the ledge across the way and there's this huge valley and you know if you fall you're going to plummet and you're going to die. Well, it's like men walk up to that and they're in awe for a moment, but then they walk away. Well, that wasn't, I didn't really see that. Or they try to take that knowledge and sweep it under the carpet. And that's what men do. But God also, again, reveals himself through his word, as we've already said. And so it means God is noble. It also means that, that God has made us for a reason. We have a purpose in life. It is to know God. You know why you exist. You know your chief end in life. Your chief and main reason for existence. Your purpose it is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And as the old Southern Presbyterian Thornwell said, he said, to know God is to love God and to love is to enjoy Him. And that is what Adam's purpose was uh, as God created him. And it's our intended purpose as humans being even today. And so we, as God's creatures, are distinct from all other creation. We are made in His image, right? Again, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it talks about that. And so we are made in God's image, the Imago Dei, as uh, theologians call it. And that means in one sense that we uh, were made with knowledge, righteousness and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. But it also means that we were made to receive this knowledge of God, whether it's through His creation or His Word. And again, I'm quoting the reformer John Calvin. He talks about through the creation, God sheds fresh droplets daily of His divinity. And so we were made to receive that. We were made to glorify God, to love Him, to have fellowship with Him. But that relationship was severed because of the fall. And so later in Isaiah 59 too, it says your sins have separated you from your God. And so then God has given us his word. As John 20, 31 puts it, it says these are written, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so ultimately, this is what the Bible is about. Jesus Christ, the glorious gospel of Christ. And we'll speak more to that in just a moment. But there's another reason as to why this is important. 
that the Bible confronts us with God's existence. And that is, it gives us confidence in our witness, in our evangelism. Not long ago, Dr. Curto preached for us. I said he had one volume and one speed, loud and fast. And I had him for several classes at seminary. And he would always tell us that when you go to evangelize, as he can only say it, God has gone before you. Creation has gone before you. So think of Psalm 19. Think of Romans chapter 1. When you're talking to an unbeliever about Christ, they may say, oh, there is no God. They may say, I cannot believe that there is a God. I have no reason to believe. I can't know. You can say, you do know. In your heart of hearts, you know it's impossible for Him not to exist. And that gives us confidence where it should. And so at some point we have what some have called a, a head-on collision with worldviews. The Christian and biblical worldview against all others. Atheism, agnosticism, and whatever ism there is. And so then you can see why over the years, unbelievers, whether they're outside of the church or inside of the visible church, unbelievers, they want to get rid of, they want to dismantle and discredit the first 11 chapters of Genesis. When I was in Bible college, they talked about that, and there was this JEPD theory that said the first five books of Moses was actually written by several different authors, and uh, they would use that to discredit the inspiration and authority of Scripture. And the only thing I remember about it is that the one teaching us, he said, just remember, it's the just every dumb preacher theory. And uh, take that for what it's worth, but that's all I remember about it. But the point is that men attack it, and they attack it for good reason. And when I say good reason, I mean good from their perspective, because it confronts them with God's existence. Second, I would like for us to see this morning that uh, Genesis chapter 1 informs us about creation's beginning and its origin. Verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created, that God created the heavens and the earth. And we say all things visible and invisible. How did he do it? He spoke it into existence. If you ever heard the phrase ex nihilo, that's what it's talking about. God spoke things in existence out of nothing. And of course, men will have their arguments against this, but I remind you, that this whole act of creation is part of the Christian faith. Hebrews 11, uh, in verse 3, says this. Let me read it to you. It makes this point. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, verse 1. Verse 3 says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So this is an article of the Christian faith that God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, it takes faith to believe in evolution too. Uh, because no one was there. It can't be said that scientific fact proves it because no scientist was there when, when God created the heavens and the earth. But we stand on good ground 
We have positive evidence as to why we believe this. Number one, because it's in the inspired Word of God. And we would have to unpack the whole inspiration of Scripture. We don't have time for that this morning. But that brings with it authority because it's the Word of God. It brings authority. So we are to believe it because God spoke it and has given it to us. But second, we believe it because of the impossibility of the contrary. You see, there are those who say that God does not exist. They are atheists. And they are operating on a biblical worldview. They're borrowing God's knowledge that He's revealed in Scripture. Why can I say that? Because unbelievers, especially unbelieving scientists, they assume what is called the uniformity of nature. That the laws of nature and physics and so forth are the same here in Cumming, Georgia, as they are in Scotland. The philosopher David Hume talked about this and said, really, we have no reason to assume the uniformity of nature. He was an unbeliever. But the Christian answers that and says, actually, we do have good reason. It's because the God of creation and order holds all things together. He put it this way. And so that's the Christian worldview. Now, when we talk about these days of creation, I just want to say a few things about it. Again, I could you know, preach a whole other sermon on that topic itself. What does the Bible say? Um, well, there are some Christians uh, who would say, well, God did not use six ordinary days to create the earth, the heavens and the earth. And they will point to passages such as 2 Peter 3 and verse 8, where it says one day is like a thousand years to the Lord. But you have to understand the context there in 2 Peter. He's talking about the Lord's patience. He's not talking about creation. Some people will point to things such as carbon dating and say, where have you been? I mean, carbon dating has, has proven that evolution is true. And here's what you can ask them. Did you know that men have used carbon dating in this way? Um, men were given, scientists were given wood from living trees. And they were told to date it with carbon dating. And they dated it at 10,000 years old. Men took mortar from the old Oxford College in England and they dated it to be 7,370 years old. So carbon dating, as we see, is inaccurate. And there's a problem with that approach. It's the problem of what we call eisegesis. That means reading into the text. Taking what we see or what we think we see and understand and imposing that upon the text of Holy Scripture rather than going to Scripture and digging out what it actually says and means. That's exegesis. We're exposing, we're, we're digging, and we're seeing what God has revealed to us in His Word. And so that's the way we should approach it. And when you do that, you come up with six days of ordinary length for the days of creation. Just consider this. Um, first of all, there's, I'm using a lot of theological terms this morning. But there's this thing called the perspicuity of Scripture. It really took me a long, long time to learn how to pronounce that word. Um, so I'll say it again, perspicuity of Scripture. Um, and that means the clarity of Scripture. At face value, it's clear. I mean, the very first chapter of the Bible, the very first book of Moses, of the Pentateuch, the first five books, if it were hard to understand and all of this, we start off on shaky ground, Right? 
I mean, it talks about the beginnings. Genesis means the beginning, the book of beginnings. There's the beginning of creation, the beginning which includes the Sabbath, marriage, work, all of these things. It's clear. And uh, also there's this issue of the Hebrew word for day, which is yom. When you put it into English, it's Y-O-M. And uh, in verse 5, you can see that God uh, named the light day and the darkness he called night. And so you have this cycle of night and day, morning and evening. And uh, there's this um, literary device in the Hebrew. It's called a Bob consecutive. And that's just indicating the word and. And God did this. And God did that. And God did that. And in Hebrew, that means it's narrative. It's historical narrative. We are getting a history of the beginning of the heavens and the earth. It's not figurative. It's not poetry, as some would like to say. It's narrative. And then this one is even stronger. There's this formula in the Hebrew running throughout Genesis 1. And it is that Bob consecutive, or, or rather it's um, the formula evening plus morning plus the word day. Evening, morning, plus day. And that always refers to a solar hour. And that's in verse 5, 8, 13, 19, 23, verse 31. And in case maybe you don't understand that yet or, or you're, you're questioning, it, questioning that, the fourth commandment, which gives us the Sabbath, assumes the historical accuracy. That's in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. It gives us the historical accuracy of the days of creation. There is no radical discontinuity between God's work week and our work week. The seventh day is a part of the week, a part of God's created order. And so the point is that the fourth commandment assumes that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And then last, I'm, this is very important, so I'm, I'm giving this to you. In Psalm 33, the psalmist enjoins us to praise God, rejoice in the Lord, verse 1, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Why? Verse 4, the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. In verse 8, it says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That would be rather anticlimactic for the psalmist to say, give glory to God for he spoke. And millions of years later, we have what we see today. God doesn't stutter. He spoke and it was done. And this matters for several reasons. It implies God's sovereignty, His right over His creation, His rule over His creation. And it rules out all other beliefs concerning the origin of the universe, right? Whether it's atheism, evolution, or as the Greeks used to think, that matter is eternal, it's always been. It rules out theistic evolution, that God used the process of evolution to create the heavens and the earth. I mean, just think about this real quick. If theistic evolution is true, 
then we have a theological problem. Why do I say that? Well, at what point did the evolving, we'll say, Neanderthal become a man? And also the evolution of man breaks down the federal union of men with Adam. And that destroys the gospel. Because if you go back and read Romans 5, 12 and following, if you go back and read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses this argument to say there's a first Adam. And then there's a second Adam. The first Adam was one man. Through his act, we all fell with him. He brought death into the world through his sin. But the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his one act, saves or justifies his people, basically. So there's this parallel. And so the gospel begins to unravel if evolution is true. And again, this is why hostile, unbelieving men try to discredit, discount, or disregard the section of Holy Scripture. And so I like the way our catechism puts it, the shorter catechism. It asks, what is God's work of creation? It says, God's work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of His power in the space of six days and all very good. And so this account that we have here in Genesis is crucial to the Christian world view. If you're a pastor, if you're here and you're not a member, you're a member somewhere else, if your pastor does not believe this, ask yourself the question, does he believe Holy Scripture? And why doesn't he believe it? Well, there's a third thing we ought to see here, and that is this effect that Genesis 1 has, and that is that it grounds us with the ordinances of creation. This is important always, at all times, in every culture. I'm referring to these institutions that God has given to mankind and these standards that apply to all people at all times in all locations. We talk about marriage and the sanctity of marriage. Uh, We see that um, in Genesis 1, verse 28, it says that after He created man, male and female, verse 27, that God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. It wasn't up to Adam and Eve to, you know, to, for those two to fill the earth. He's speaking generally to all mankind. This is part of the creation mandate, and that is marriage. We, we recognize there are some, as Paul talks about in Corinthians, who at certain points might have this gift of singleness. But he also says it's better to marry than to burn. But more than that, marriage is for companionship. Ephesians 5, it reflects the relationship between Christ and His church. And as we see here, it is to provide a godly offspring. And marriage is between one genetic male and one genetic female. Last week I quoted my childhood pastor. I'll quote him again. He would always say, God did not give Adam and Steve. He gave Adam and Eve. 
And now we have to say in our day and time that marriage is between one genetic male and one genetic female. That's God's created order. We see that here in Genesis 1 and later in Genesis 2. Where God creates Adam and then Eve. Now, in the world today, the world would tell us, well, it's, uh, it's not that great at the very least. It's not great to have a large family. And in fact, maybe you don't need to bring children into this world. That's unbelieving thought. Uh, children, by some, are thought to be a curse. As we saw in Psalm, Psalm 128 that we sang earlier, and the other psalm before that, 127, we see that children are heritage and a gift from the Lord. And it talks about how the Lord blesses a family by giving to them many children. Margaret Sanger, who lived in the early part of the 20th century, was a eugenicist and basically the founder of what is today Planned Parenthood. She said this, The worst sin in the world is bringing a child into it A child that has no chance in the world of being human practically. So to support Planned Parenthood is to support that worldview. And uh, by the way, 79, this is as of 10 years or so so ago, 79% of Planned Parenthood facilities were put in African American neighborhoods. Why? Because Margaret Sanger said that African Americans are like weeds that needed to be exterminated. How would you like that for your worldview? And so that leads us to man's dignity. Again, in verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We're to have dominion over the creatures of the earth. This distinguishes us from animals. We are not just sacks of flesh filled with DNA. We are made in God's image. That's what dignifies us as God's creatures. And we have our duty listed here as well. Again, to to be fruitful and multiply, to take dominion over the earth. Doesn't mean that we worship the earth. You know, there's a movement today. And uh, I would, if you haven't, I would encourage you to look up the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, or Schwab. Look that up. And the environmental movement that goes with that. Because they're saying there's too many people on the earth. We're going to lose the earth. The earth is king. The earth is God. No, God is God. And we as humans are to take dominion. We are stewards of the earth. But what has happened since the fall is that men take dominion over other men. And so we have war. We have tyranny. And all of these things. We have bullies on the playground. Because of sin. We have here as well the sanctity of work. Um, you know, that's based on the analogy between God's work week and our work week. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. The seventh is the Sabbath. Now the seventh day Sabbath has been transformed to the first day of the week according to the first coming of Christ. We've talked about that in times past. But the Sabbath and work are part of our rhythm of time. And there's the sanctity of work. God said that work is part of His creation and it's all very good. 
Now, because of the fall, work has been cursed. And so we have thorns and thistles. It becomes difficult, frustrating, and there's a reason for that. It's because of sin. And it should cause us to say, well, is this it? I get up, I go work hard, some days I I get much done, some days I don't get anything done, I get a headache, my hair's all messed up at the end of the day, what's going on? I, I go to bed, I get up, and I do it again. That's kind of the message of Ecclesiastes, in part. So there is work. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, it says, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. We recognize there are the disabled, there are the poor. Jesus said the poor will always be with you. And so we're confronted with the Bible versus the other isms, socialism, communism, Marxism, which basically steal from hardworking individuals and uh, distribute that wealth to others who do not work hard. By the way, in America, we learned that lesson. If you don't know this, we learned that lesson at our beginning at Plymouth Colony. Remember William Bradford, the pilgrims and all of that? They tried that. They tried to, to take all of their, their crops and kind of put them in a pot and then share them. Well, guess what? There were a lot of lazy people that weren't pulling their weight. And here we are today talking about that very same thing. Actually, engaged in it already. There's the sanctity of the Sabbath here. Again, this is before the Ten Commandments. It's part of God's order, part of His creation. And so God has given that to us. And this is crucial to the true religion. The Frenchman, the atheist, the anti-Christian under the pen name of Voltaire, said if we can destroy the Sabbath, we can destroy Christianity. An unbeliever saw that. And then a try. And so when it comes to the Lord's Day today as Christians, we do not have a minimalist mindset that we check off that box and we're done and we go have second Saturday and do what the world does. No. We see it as God's gift to recoup, to rest. Not only to reflect as Exodus 20 calls us to do, to reflect on God's creation But as Deuteronomy 5 puts it, to reflect on our redemption. The rest that we have in the Lord because of our salvation. I've already alluded to the sanctity of life. Man is made in the image of God. In Genesis 9-6, after the fall, after the flood, God gives this, um, this rule that if any man sheds another man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. That's capital punishment. Why? For in the image of God He made man. And so we all have the right to life. In the womb, outside the womb. Again, God is sovereign over His creation. He is the one who determines the ethics and the rules of life. And so He tells us elsewhere in Scripture, in the fallen world, if we need to defend ourselves, we have that right. If there is a just and necessary war, governments have that right. But men of all colors, shapes and sizes and languages and ethnicities have the right to life. And this prohibits murder, which is an act of killing. Not all killing is murder, as I've explained already. It prohibits abortion, which is murder. 
And as always, when I mention that, if you've been affiliated with abortion, remember David, who committed adultery and murder. He had Bathsheba's husband murdered on the battlefield. And he cried out to God in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me. And God had mercy because of Christ Jesus who would come. There is mercy, complete forgiveness for that and all sins available through Christ. Because of the sanctity of life, eugenics is evil and wicked. What is that? Listen to these two definitions. Eugenics is the practice of selective breeding of human populations by sterilization to improve the population's genetic composition. Another explanation is that it is the science of improving stock, whether human or animal. Again, this goes back to what I've said about Planned Parenthood. She wanted to exterminate certain populations, the useless eaters. And she said again, quote Sanger, the most merciful thing a large family does to its infant members is kill it. By the way, I encourage you to study Bill Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Bill Gates' father, his association with eugenics, Bill Gates and his um, philanthropy work, philanthropic work in Africa and India, where he's been kicked out because of his doings there. Remember euthanasia, or rather Terry Schiavo. This speaks to euthanasia and all of these things. Murder of all sorts and kinds. Only God determines who shall live and who shall die. And also this informs us as well, since God created the heavens and the earth, it informs us about His created order. Whether it's the physical laws of earth, gravity and so forth, time as being part of His creation, Math, children, do you hate math? You need to understand that God created it. It's it's a reflection of Him and, and His truth, His logic. Music. There are certain tastes in music. I'm not going to get go in the weeds on that. Being a drummer, though, it does fascinate me that you must keep time in music. And there must be order. There are scales and so forth. And logic. Things visible and invisible. The laws of logic. If you watch TV, you've probably seen a commercial for Logitech, and there is this rapper named Lil Nas, and the theme is Defy Logic. And it's interesting, uh, one of my children said the same thing I did at different times. Well, well, they're saying Defy God's Order. When you look at that commercial, you'll see what I mean. And as one of my Engineering friends said, we don't want these people, these woke people, building our bridges, do we? Of course not. Well, there's one last thing I would like for us to consider. That is that Genesis 1 prepares us for John chapter 1. At the end of Genesis 1, in verse 31, God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. But are all things 
really that good today in our world. We would say no. I mean, we look, we can still say that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God's creation speaks of His existence. It is awesome. But it's out of kilter. It's cursed. Why? Because of Genesis 3, the fall of man into sin. God cursed Adam. He cursed the woman. He cursed the serpent. He cursed the ground upon which the man walked. And so then how does Genesis prepare us? Genesis 1 prepares for John's gospel. Well, it tells us about the beginning and the beginning. But we have these clues. I'll just mention a few. There's light and darkness in Genesis 1. In the Bible, darkness is seen figuratively as the realm of evil. The Bible says we're not children of the night, but children of the day. We've been transferred, 1 Peter 2 says, from darkness into his marvelous light. In John 8, Christ himself is that light-giving life. In the days of creation, guess what? The light comes before the sun. People point to that and say, well, how does that happen? It's all out of order. What doesn't make sense? And to that we just say, God is God. This is a miraculous event. And as some have said, it shows us that our source of life himself comes from God, not the sun. And today, our source of eternal and spiritual life comes from God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's that whole thing about Sabbath and rest. Adam and Eve, they didn't really enter into that rest. That was promised. Hebrews 4 makes it clear that there remains a rest, a sabbatos, a Sabbath for the people of God. And that while we enjoy these foreshadows every week of the rest that is to come, we as God's people look forward to our full rest in Christ, who is our rest. What does he say in Matthew 11? He says, come unto me, all you who are weary, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Another clue is the Spirit. The Spirit hovers over the waters in Genesis 1. He's active. He's the agent of creation. God speaks it into existence. The Spirit is active in making things and making them come alive and so forth. And He's also the agent of the new creation. Ezekiel 37, 14, God promises. He says, I'll put my spirit in you and you shall live. In John's gospel, in chapter 1, John the Baptist says, you will see the Son of Man. You will recognize Him because the Spirit will come and descend upon Him. And so in John chapter 1, we see the work of the Spirit, John 3, who gives life. And so we ask, is there something more to life than this. John's Gospel will answer that for us. This is why God has given to us the Bible, Holy Scripture, His Word, and His Gospel. And so, Lord willing, as we study the Gospel of John, we'll see the work of creation. We'll see the beginning of the new creation. Its inauguration through the Lord Jesus Christ, His work. 
We'll study Jesus, His healings, His life, His death, burial, and resurrection. And we shall give Him glory. It's my prayer that as we study John's Gospel, that our love and affection for Jesus will be rekindled like never before. He says, you've left your first love. Go and do the things you did at first. That's my prayer. But that will happen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word which tells us of the life given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to studying Your Gospel of John. We pray that You would bless it. For Your glory we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.